0: Well, welcome to Wilshire. We are grateful that you are with us, members. It's always, always good to see you, and uh, visitors. Uh, we are grateful that you've chosen to be with us. You've come to a good place. These are good people, most of them, uh, and um, we are grateful that you're sharing time with us this morning. We'll have a little period of coffee after this, and then a Bible class. And we hope if you're visiting, you can stay for all of that. Uh, Inappropriate. It's interesting. That word has kind of risen in frequency of use. It's no secret. Our society is a bit confused uh, about what's right and wrong. And we have... That there's some awkwardness about just coming out and saying, you know, this is morally good, this is morally bad. And so inappropriate is one of the words that we have slotted in to talk about behavior we don't approve of. So I hear that a lot, inappropriate. And today, when we're talking about Jesus, I want to talk about his most inappropriate behavior. Jesus was without sin. He didn't do anything wrong ever. But he was sure inappropriate a lot. And the most inappropriate behavior he had, the most shocking behavior, nothing about Jesus was more shocking than the fact that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Chip, Uh, did a wonderful job this morning uh, reading from this passage uh, in Luke chapter 15. And I hope that if you've got Bibles, and I know you do because they're right there in the pew. If you've got Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 15 and follow along as we discuss this. This This is one of several places where this issue becomes a front and center issue in the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. That he will spend time with willingly, with tax collectors and sinners, who the people of that day considered that was a behavior that was considered to be inappropriate, shocking even. Now, why did they consider that to be shocking? I mean, that's that's how chapter 15 opens. It says the tax collectors and the sinners, they were all coming to Jesus. As you can imagine, they would. Here's somebody who's preaching gospel, good news. And the Pharisees are sitting back and eyeing that with kind of an evil eye, a disapproving stare, and saying, this man welcomes sinners and and even eats with them. And that's how the stories that Jesus begins to tell are set up in the gospel of Luke. This was a big deal to Luke, and this was a big deal in the life of Jesus himself. Again and again and again, we run into this problem. I'm going to tell you something, church. As I was studying for this, I realized, man, we still have this problem. Human beings are just kind of super tribal You know, I hate to admit this, but I never really followed the thunder. I still don't. I mean, I know as a somebody who lives in Oklahoma City, that's, that's treachery, but I never really followed them. And it's really interesting. My feelings were really hurt when James Harden left the thunder. And I don't even follow the team. Why were my feelings hurt? When That was a long time ago, and I'm still kind of upset about it. I'm not even going to mention the others. <laughs> talk about? But all of those hurt my feelings, and I'm not a basketball fan. Why? Because I'm tribal. And somebody leaves the tribe, and I feel like I'm diminished somehow. I feel like I'm hurt somehow. And just think about the conversations you've had about politics or religion or anything else. When, when somebody you thought was in your group says something that makes it sound like they're in the other group, that actually makes you feel less. And the reason we get angry about politics and religion so much, and, and, and the reason we get uh, fearful in those realms has a lot to do with the fact we're just very psychologically tribal. We want to set up these lines, these boundaries to say, this is our group, this is who's in our group, and we don't want people crossing those lines because we feel like we're losing if people cross over and go to the other lines. And that was what was so inappropriate about Jesus. He kept crossing the lines that the Pharisees and the religious people of his day had set up. They said, you know, somebody who is enough of a traitor to the Jewish people that he's willing to go on the Roman payroll to collect taxes from us to give to those idol worshipers in Rome. That person does not deserve for you to speak to them, let alone sit down and share a meal with them. And there were several other groups that were kind of in that same that same category in the Jewish mind of the first century. We just don't don't associate with them. And Jesus kept doing it. It was shocking. It was inappropriate. And so Jesus addresses it, and Luke collects these, these stories that he tells about this issue. And this is not the only time this comes up. It's not the only time Jesus addresses this. But these stories are some of my favorites. That last one, the story of the prodigal son, that may be the worldwide favorite parable of Jesus. It's possible the parable of the Good Samaritan gives it a run for its money, but uh, this one, this is just uh, amazing. But he starts off smaller. He tells the story of somebody who's got lost sheep. If you've got 99 sheep and there's only one missing. You don't just say, okay, well, that's pretty good, 99%. You go looking for that lost sheep. That's money. You don't, you don't just leave that to the side. He says, let me tell you. And and, and and if you find that sheep, you're very excited. If you're a lady that that has... 10 gold coins, and one of them goes missing. You tear the house up looking for that. You're very excited if you find it. There are several morals to these stories that Jesus tells. I think the one that's interesting to me is that in both cases, Jesus narrates the effort. You go looking for that lost sheep. We have a song that kind of poetically walks through what that was like, the shepherd going out in the night and getting all torn and and torn up by the thorns and and, and trying to find that lost sheep. Jesus narrates the effort of the woman trying to search. She lights all the lamps. She sweeps every corner trying to find that lost coin. Because finding lost things takes effort. I hate to admit this, but there are certain books besides the Bible that I have multiple copies of. You'd expect me to have multiple copies of the Bible, and I do. There are other books that I don't really need multiple copies of. But my library is so uh, disorganized that it's frequent, I hate to admit this, I think I've told you this before, it's frequently easier for me to just go to Amazon and order a new book than to search for the one I know I have. That's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, okay, well, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry for you, Ruby. <laughs> uh, it takes effort to search for something that's lost. And Jesus is reminding us of that fact. Jesus show us how often the lost stay lost, because no one goes to the trouble of trying to save them. That's a tragedy. That there are lost people out there, and and with some effort, we might be able to give them a chance. But we don't. That's a tragedy. And Jesus says, God is not sitting around. God is after lost people. He is doing things to bring in the lost. And God's people are meant to be part of that. That's a powerful thing to be reminded of. And Jesus is trying to explain why he keeps doing this inappropriate thing he's doing. Crossing the lines you're not supposed to cross. And fellowshipping with people you're not supposed to fellowship. But but he says part of this has to do with trying to save some people. Because God's heart is with bringing as many people into salvation as possible. He told those two stories. They're almost like warm-up stories. Lost sheep, lost coin. And then he gets to the big one. The lost son. You've got it there in front of you. And Chip did a wonderful job reading it for us this morning. It's a wonderful story. It's kind of got five acts, you know. It just kind of works through the different elements of the narration. Two sons... The younger son, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, not the brightest bulb in the pack. You know, you'd have to say those things about him. He, he thinks he's pretty good, and, and he goes to his father and says, I, I really can't wait around for you to die. I, I'm kind of I'm bored with you, you know, living so long, Dad. So I want you to just sell off a third of the farm, turn it into cash, and give that to me. And I will show you how much more of a brilliant manager I am. If I have those resources, you'll see some some sparks flying out of this noggin. That story goes exactly like you'd expect it to go. Jesus says, Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Boom. You knew that was coming. You knew that was coming. That's who this guy is. And after he had spent everything he had, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. And he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his own belly with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Yeah, you knew that that's where that was headed. This guy is not that smart and he's not that righteous. He's not righteous at all. He's insulting to his father, dishonors his family, harms the village where he lives by taking away their, you know, income from that. One of the major farms, we assume, in that village. And now he's suffering terribly. And in the story, Jesus doesn't, you know, make this guy kind of have a heart of gold or anything. You know, he's, oh yeah, but he's secretly a good boy. He's not really, at least not by Jesus' telling. What makes him decide to go back home and humble himself? What is it? you you got the story in front of you what makes him decide to go back home you can yes starving starving he says even the servants in my father's house eat better than I'm eating now so i'm going to go back home and say whatever i need to say to at least get fed he's not a kid with a you know he's good inside. He's just misunderstood. No, he's not misunderstood. We understand him really well. He's just not a great guy. And he doesn't, you know, come to a huge moral epiphany. But he does one thing right. (laughs) He actually moves back towards the Father. (laughs) And he has this little speech prepared. I've dishonored you. I've dishonored God. I, you know, I don't really deserve to be your son. And Just let me be one of your slaves. And he's rehearsed that, you know, on the way back he's rehearsed it. And and he gets, and his dad comes running towards him. There's a lot of things the dad could have done The dad could have sat in the house and made him, you know, pass through three or four layers of bureaucracy before he got to him. Could have sat there waiting, you know, typical, you have something to say to me, son. The father comes running. He cuts him off. I'm not worthy to be your son. Let me stop you right there. Get the robe. Get the ring. Get the shoes. We need this guy looking like my son again. Immediately. No time to waste. Remember that special calf that we have been stall feeding. This is the time. Slaughter that thing. Prepare the feast. Because my dead son is alive again. My dead son is alive again. (sighs) There's so much in that to preach. How much time do you guys have? You're not doing anything big this week, right? We could just. Okay, that was supposed to be funny. Come on, give me something. There's so much in there about the character of God, and Jesus is helping us to get a picture of what God's like and how eager he is to have sinners just take the first step back towards him. But Jesus has also helped us to realize something about what it means, what we're actually doing when we sin, when we dishonor God. Jesus shows us that lost people aren't living. They are dying. The son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. That's going to be the words of the Father in just a few verses. The son of mine who is dead is alive again. You know, I've said before, I wish that I could hire SIN's PR firm. The people who, or the forces that, I suspect they have horns, but the forces that manage SIN's PR, public relations that advertise SIN, are really good. Because what sin is, you know what sin is in your own life. Sin is always because we were lazy, we were angry, we were lustful, we were proud. We just couldn't be bothered to do the right thing. I mean, there's nothing noble about sin ever. It's always the things we look back later and say, ugh, that was not great. And yet, when people talk about it, they talk like it's some grand adventure. You know, you can get religion when you're old. Right now, you need to live. You're not living (laughs) when you are sinning. You are dying. What are the things in your life that you look back on with the most satisfaction so far? I guarantee none of them are times that you just fell and wallowed around in sin. What makes you alive, truly alive, are the times when what you know is right coincides with what you do. And you're proud of it. You look back on those and say, yes at least i had that going for me one time that's and that's you that's the real you that's the you god sees is that you have that capacity to do what is right and to bring your life and what's right into harmony with one another that's the real you that's the real life you are meant to live and when you separate from that because you're angry resentful Lustful, uh, covetous, whatever. When you separate from what's right, you're killing yourself. That's death. This kid runs off. We get one half of one sentence says, and he spent everything in riotous living, and it was bad, and he was killing himself. And the father knows that. Now we have the last two acts of the drama. We got the son, the younger son, not a great guy. He's made one right move. He's come back to the father. And the father has embraced him. But we still got this other guy. Meanwhile, Starting in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all of these years I have been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You killed a fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. The older brother is not actually a bad guy. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but it's the truth. I mean, if you had to pick these two kids, parents, let's be honest, if you had to pick, these are your two choices, younger son or older, which one would you pick? The older son's actually a pretty good guy. He has honored his father. He has honored God. He has worked hard. He has increased the productivity of the land. He's out there doing his job when all of this other drama with the younger son goes on. He's actually a pretty good guy. And in fact, that's what makes this parable so deep, actually. This is, this is I know we do this with flannel graph for kids, but this is a really adult parable. This is a really grown-up story. Because where Satan has attacked this older brother is actually at one of his strong places. The younger the older brother is being attacked based on what is right about him in a way. Because the older brother knows right from wrong. He knows you shouldn't dishonor God and you shouldn't dishonor your father the way this younger son has done. You shouldn't go off and just throw God's law out the window and just spend your money with all kinds of horrible behaviors until it's all gone. You shouldn't do that. This older brother knows all that. And that's actually where Satan is getting him right now. because he has done the right things, he correctly recognizes, correctly recognizes all the wrong things the younger brother has done. Let me ask you this. Is it better to be somebody who knows right from wrong or somebody who's so calloused that they can no longer tell the difference between right and wrong? You're allowed to answer me. It's okay. What do you think? It's better to know right from wrong. The older brother is better than the younger brother. It is good that he has developed that, and he's good that he has the self discipline to act on it too. But right now, that's what's tripping him up. That's where the attack of Satan is coming. Because what? What the older brother wants is the father's love. But what he is misunderstanding is that the way for him to have the father's love is for the father to withhold love from the younger brother. Somehow he really has gotten that mixed up in his head. That's why the father reassures what's going on with him. He says, son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. It's all yours. You've got my love. Jesus shows us that we can't get more of God's love by denying His love for those who have done less than we have. That's just not the way it works. That's not the way God's love works. Now, we human beings, we are very tribal and we like our lines and we like to set those up. And it makes us feel more secure to have people, you know, within the bounds. And it kind of makes us feel more secure to be able to clearly identify those who are outside. And that can be so captive, and it can be based on the truth. It can be based on trivial things like sports and politics. But it can be based on the truth too. But that truth should not blind us to the fact that God's love is already on the far side. of whatever line we set up. Because he cares about lost people. And that was the problem with Jesus. You know, I mean, Jesus was inappropriate. You can almost hear the dialogue with the disciples. You know, walking along. Oh, gross. There's one of those lepers. Ew, they are so, that is, can you imagine one of those touching you? Wait a minute, where's Jesus? Jesus don't know! Reaching out and touching a leper it was inappropriate. Oh, here comes that woman! Everybody in town knows her. Oh, don't stop near me! Don't stop near me! Don't stop near me! Jesus, don't let her touch your feet. It was inappropriate. See, that's the thing about the love of God. I mean, God is glad when you know the truth. God is glad when you know what the Bible says. Don't take any of this to be saying, oh, we just don't care anymore what the Bible says. We care. We care about what's right and wrong. God wants you to know those things and to act on them. But what he never, ever, ever wants you to forget is that he's already over there with the people who are violating what you know trying to figure out a way to save them. He's already over there. And as you gain strength as a Christian, as you grow, he says, when you're strong enough, you come over here and help me. That's the truth. That's the truth, church. There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 who are righteous. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your fantastically large grace. We thank you so much for the care and the concern that you pour into our lives, that you teach us what's right, that you give us your word to study and meditate on so that we can learn more and more deeply about what's right and what's wrong, about what's good and what's bad, what's healthy and what's unhealthy. And God, help us, give us strength to purge out of our life all those things that are wicked and all of those things that are dishonoring to you and all those things that are unloving to each other. But God also help us to get more and more of your heart for those who have not even taken the first step towards you. God help us to have that heart. And as we grow in our strength, to act, to reach out to those who are lost. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you need to respond to God's invitation, if you need prayers or help of some kind that we can offer you and you want to ask for that publicly in just a minute, we're going to sing, come down the aisle, tell us what we can do for you. If today is the day you would like to begin your walk as a Christian, put on Jesus Christ in baptism, have your sins washed away, begin a brand new life. We can do that today too. Make the decision that you need to make as we stand and as we sing.